Hello and welcome to a new series from the Matron Boxing Podcast Collection. This is A Dream Achieved and I'm your host Scott Hamilton. Each month we're going to be taking a deep dive in some classic Matron matchups where our fighters landed the big one. Where else to start in our very first episode with dazzling Darren Barker? It's exactly 10 years ago today from when we're recording since that famous night in Atlantic City on August the 17th, 2013. So Darren, 10 years ago today, yeah. does it feel like 10 years? Yes and no, if I'm honest with you. When I think about what's happened in 10 years, I've had three new kids. I only had my daughter, Scarlett Rose, um, when I fought Gil. So I've had three kids. I've got married. A lot has happened. But when I think about the fight, the week, the build-up, you know, I wouldn't say it feels like yesterday, but it doesn't seem 10 years ago. We said on the train up this morning, so we're in Birmingham at the minute for the Galalia Fire Show, what was you doing 10 years before that day? And you can sort of vaguely piece it together in your head. You as an yeah. amateur coming towards the end of your, your time in the amateur game. Yeah, so it yeah, would have been 2003. Um, I'd boxed in the World Championships. I'd obviously won the Commonwealth Games the year before that. So yeah, I was well in sort of trying to qualify for the Athens Games, which I didn't end up doing. So yeah, I, I turned pro. That's where we're at, mate. Time certainly flies. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on on that fight and everything around it. So a little bit of background. Daniel Gill. Mm. It was his first fight in America. When the fight was announced on May the 20th, 2013, it was sort of billed as, you know, Gill's breakout fight on HBO. He was coming to America. How long were you in negotiations for that fight? Because you did box a couple of months prior. Yeah, it, if I'm honest, it's all a bit hazy, but... I do remember where I was when I found out the fight had actually got across the line and I was fighting for the world title again. Um, my mum had just graduated. She did like a mature student um, course in midwifery and we was on the South Bank and I remember Eddie calling me saying, and I remember saying to my family, oh, Eddie's calling, Eddie's calling, because we knew we were close to getting the fight and he and he, and he told me on that phone call that, yeah, we've, the, the fight's happening. So I think I had about 14 weeks to the day for him calling me to the day. And yeah, nuts, nut, like nuts. I just remember being extremely confident thinking, this is it, I'm going to be a world champion. You were ranked number three with the IBF at the time. You just won the IBF Intercontinental title against Rotolo mm. in the March and you beat Kerry Hope in the December a couple of months before. So you had three fights all in, including Gill, in eight months. How important was that activity at that stage of your career? Yeah, because... I mean, I thought I, I was pro for ten years. It's a long time, and I only had twenty-eight fights. And at the end, there was a lot. It was a bit stop-start. It was very important to get the the Kerry Hope and the Rotolo fighting, and it was they they were two wins that gave me a lot of confidence because my body was really failing on me, and I I'd not many know this, but I'd sort of retired after the Martinez fight. What happened was I had a hip operation. And then I got back in the gym. Everything was fine. I was scheduled to fight and um, I nearly ruptured my biceps. So I had to pull out of a fight. I think it was Tony Bell you ended up headlining against Edison, Edison Miranda. Miranda. Uh, Ali Pally. Yeah, yeah. It was Ali yeah. Pally. So I, I remember sort of saying to Tony, oh, look, I've had to pull out of the fight. Mike Loosemore, the doctor, he used to work for England and GB. He said, look, if you fight, there's a good chance you're going to rupture your, your bicep." So we pulled out the fight and I sort of said to Tony, look, I don't think I can do this anymore. I think my body's packed up. 
give it a bit of time. Then I went back to Sony and said, look, this is going to be it. This is it now. The final run. This is the final run. Um, and I think you see in my attitude in the, the fight, I sort of fought out of character. I, I, I like to think that I was quite a tidy, technical, aggressive counterpuncher. But in these fights, I was just sort of 100 miles per hour. I just wanted to get the job done. And um, I did get a lot of confidence from the hope and the Rotolo fight going into the Guild fight. Two years before that, you obviously come up short against Sergio Martinez. How much, in hindsight now, looking back, did that whole experience going through the motions, understanding how, you know, a different commission works, adjusting to the time zone, and ultimately testing yourself against the best. Massive. Massive. I can't tell you. you could, look, I can't quite articulate or explain how important, how pivotal that whole, not the fight itself, well, not just the fight itself, the whole build-up. Like you say, little things like that, the commission and dealing with different people, you become familiar with recognisable faces when you're dealing with the same people all the time, um, as I had um, being a member of the British Boxing Board of Control. And all of a sudden, you're out there, you're in a different commission, the New Jersey Commission, and different faces, and you're in this big buzz, you're doing a press conference, a weigh-in where you're fighting for a world title against one of the the best pound-for-pound pound fighters out there at the minute. You don't you start questioning yourself. I knew I was a good fighter, but I didn't know how good I actually was. And he taught me a lot, Sergio Martinez. The fight itself, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed because I feel like I could, I could have done better in that fight, even though I thought, okay, I could have done better. I'm not saying I would have beaten him, but I could have done better. But having said that, the experiences that I did learn and what I can take away from the fight is that I did belong at that level. I was um, a world-class fighter. And again, kind of sort of retired after that fight. I just thought, like I say, I was content. I had the injury and I was just like, do you know what? This would do me. British Commonwealth European champion. It's all right. But then so somehow I got my second wind. Around that sort of time as well was arguably Pete Golovkin coming through he burst on the scene on HBO as well now I know a fight with Golovkin was positioned to you at one stage probably when he was a little bit lone was that Proxka he ended up fighting I think it was Proxka but a lot of people get this twisted this story a little bit I think they think I pulled out of the fight I was offered the fight by Eddie Uh, I was offered 300,000 pounds of dollars after the Martinez fight. Because obviously, when you put in a performance like I did against one of the best out there, pound for pound, everyone else in the division wants to outdo Martinez. So in Golovkin's eyes, I'm like, right, let's do him in, you know, under uh, 11 or whatever it was. But I straight away said to Ed, I'll take the fight all day long. I know exactly who he is. He boxed in the World Championships with me. He's when he knocked out Butte, he won gold in the World Championships. I knew exactly who he was. I knew how good of a fighter he was. But I was... Game as they come. Get me in there. I'll fight. I'm, you know, you want to test yourself against the best. I, kn- I knew how good he was, but it was uh, Tony. <laughs> Tony, thankfully, said, no, let's go down a different route. And uh, we, we did. And I'm thankful. Don't get me wrong. I would have liked to have fought Golovkin, no doubt. I'm glad the stars aligned that Tony said that. And, you know, I ended up going down the IBF route. Yeah, probably at the time, you probably was thinking, oh, you know, the money's great. Another crack at the big time. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose in a way, that's why Tony's employed to be not only a trainer, but someone who can oversee those decisions. Definitely, definitely. Any fighter, look, you're not a real fighter if you don't want to get in there with him. I would fight anyone. When I was fighting, I'd get me in there with him, I don't care. You know, I'd fight anyone. I'm not saying that I would have beaten him, I would have given my best and I would have gone in the fight believing I could win. But that's why, exactly what you said there, why you have trainers, managers, certainly ones that are going to look after you. And I was... 
you know, I posted today, Tony posted saying great memories of the, the fight. And I've said, look, I couldn't have done it without you. And I, that's facts. I could not have done this without Tony. Well, a couple of years ago in fight camp during one of the, uh, the lockdown shows, we paired you up with Tony mm. to watch the fight back. And actually, if you haven't seen that, it's worth going through it. It's the first time yourself and Tony yeah. have watched it at the same time yeah. and um, brings back some some memories and little stories, which uh, which we won't tap into today. But yeah, go back and uh, check that out following this. So like you say, Golovkin was positioned, didn't happen for one reason or another. This fight started to come to fruition. So I'm going to read your, your quote from the official fight press release, oh, which you may or may not have said. Nah. <laughs> but let's be honest... Um, you know, the listeners probably don't understand. Some of these press releases are mocked up by the the media gurus of promotional outfits who would probably just send it to you and say, Darren, I wrote this. Do you want to add anything? Do you want to change yeah, yeah. anything? So this is the official quote. This is a golden opportunity for me and I feel it's my time to shine. It's been a tough journey for me, but I'm one fight away from realising my dream and becoming world champion. I've dedicated my whole career and life to this sport and since the Martinez fight, I feel I've really grown as a fighter. I can't wait to bring the IBF world title back to the UK. So actually what you were saying there matches the Martinez um, mm. mindset. You grew from that defeat. And I guess in a way, you probably don't realise how good you are until you go in with someone like that. So. Yeah. I've done all the sparring in the world. I had a good amateur um, pedigree. I've done all the sparring, like I say, in the world with top class fighters. But it's all a bit different. It's not the same intensity. You're wearing big gloves, you've got head guards on, and you kind of got the, your foot off the gas slightly when you're sparring. Um, so, yeah, I knew I was a world-class fighter having fought Martinez. And um, that quote would have, you know, if I didn't, if it wasn't word for word, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have, you know, that would have been me saying similar stuff because it was, right, let's, let's go and do this. Let's fulfil a dream. Let's prove to myself, nobody else, how good I am. And on the opposite side, Daniel's official quote was, Barker has to be one of the toughest opponents I've faced on paper. I've been in the ring with world titleists, but it remains to be seen whether he can offer up anything extra. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Funny, with, with me and Gil, our careers run parallel for a long time. Um, he won the Commonwealth Games, the same games I did. He won it at Walter, I won it at Light Walter. We went to the same world championships uh, in Thailand with different sides of the draw. We was the same weight then, but different sides of the draw didn't end up meeting. Um, Did you ever spar him at all? No, nah, never. Never never sparred with him, but knew exactly who he was. Then he turned pro. He went to the games. He went to the Athens games. Uh, they had a bit of an easier qualification process than we did in Europe. Um, qualified for the games, then he turned pro um, and done, done really, really well. You know, I was always gutted, actually. If there's one thing I'm gutted about the fight, there's, <laughs> there's not much I'm gutted about when I look back at it because I have such fond memories. But he was a unified champion. He had to vacate the WBA because this fight happened. And I think he had a mandatory against Golovkin. So the kind of, I guess, the easier fight for him would have been certainly to fight me on his American debut. So gutted that I didn't get to win the WBA as well. Yeah, that gets overlooked, actually, doesn't it? Mm. But boxing politics, as you full well know, there's so much going on and, yeah. and sometimes you do have to uh, part ways. So just talking a little bit more about the background of the fight, you alluded to the, the injuries uh, a minute or two back. Everyone knows, you know, you had hip problems. Can you actually tell us exactly what is wrong with the hip? Let's get a bit scientific. And, right, uh, so <coughs> I was in, where was I? Was I, th I think it was Tenerife. I was on a training camp and I was running. I never really felt it before and... I was running along the, the beach. It was Tenerife. I was with Tony and a couple of others, Dave Stewart and a few others. 
And um, I remember stopping cause just through pain. It felt like my hip was actually grinding. It's the best way I can describe it, grinding. There was no sort of support there. It just felt like it was. It, it actually was. This is, it was bone on bone. And I remember saying to Tony, like, Tony, I'm in agony. I can't run. He said, oh, okay, no worries. He's really, really good, Tony. Like that. He was, though he was old school, he was never like, right, you've got to do it, you've got to do this, brother. He knew that I trained hard, and if there was something wrong, it was obviously a legitimate issue. Um, and this constantly kept happening. I was all right, I could run for a certain amount of distance, and then it just started kicking in. If I went, if I started running fast, I was a good runner, if I started running fast and over a longer time, it would really start, that grinding feeling would happen. So... Um, I eventually had to go and see a specialist and the, the, this is, you know, a lot of people don't understand these sort of problems that you have to overcome. I couldn't get medical insurance because being a pro boxer, you sort of straight away say to Booper, your occupation boxer, no, we won't insure you. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So I've had to go and pay, I've had to pay you this all myself. So two hip operations, I did get a bit of help with one of them, a really good friend of ours. Um, but... Luke Chandler, elite scaffolding, he found this top hip surgeon. He said, right, bang, if we're going to go and see someone, we're going to go and see the best. So we went and see this hip surgeon, and we sat down with this doctor, Dr. Johan Witt. And uh, it's quite funny, because <laughs> when I've had the x-ray, when we've gone in the consulting room, they put the x-ray up on the uh, side, and you can see my knob. <laughs> but, I can imagine like, you being you, I'm, you start yeah, laughing straight I'm away. giggling, and Luke's like trying to be serious. He sat in there with me. I'm like, so anyway, he's explaining to me what has happened or, and what is happening to my hip. So let's not to get not to bore you, but the actual joint, the, the socket, you know, what goes in, the bone that goes in, should be nice and round, like a light bulb, basically, and slot into the joint nice and snug, comfortably, and the cartilage in between the bone is what protects you from having the bone on bone. Well, my end of the joint was sort of all over the place. It almost looked like a fist, not as bad as that, but um, it certainly wasn't round. And what that was doing, it was wearing the cartilage away at each end. So every time I opened up, it was pinching the bone. Where is that a different angle? Exactly. Yeah, it wasn't fitting. Exactly, it yeah. didn't fit in the socket correctly. So it, it worn the cartilage away on both sides as well. So we sort of said, well, you know, what's, why has this happened? And he couldn't quite give us the answer. It was either a birth defect, wear and tear, or a bit of both. I mean, it didn't really make any odds in the end. So he said, well, what we can do is we, we have a hit. Uh, a, uh, an operation, a procedure called a hip arthroscopy, where you pull the hip out of its socket, shave the bone so it is round, and put it back in. So that is basically what I had done. I had my left one done first. You, you do one at a time. I had the left one done first. But it's a real mad, longed out process. You, you're weight bearing for a month, you're on crutches for a month. Um, the Rehab for it is really intensive. A lot of hydrotherapy in a pool, etc. So it was, um, it was a long process, mate. And mentally, that must have been quite tough to to get around. You know, you probably had doubts about your career at those stage yeah. when you was having them done. Doubts about my career. How am I going to earn? Um, Especially when you shelled out of your own pocket to, yeah, to fund yeah. this operation. Well, I did have help on the first one. And what was the time in between the two? Was it back to back? So it was after I won the European title against Athletes Belgium. First time I won the European title, and I had it done after that because that was when I was really starting to struggle. And then after that fight, uh, yeah, after that fight, sorry. And then 
I went, I think it was Martinez after that. Uh, Sparda in between. Sparda. So Belshikam, Sparda, then Martinez. Then Martin, and then I had the second one after Martinez because I was fine actually. After the first one, I was obviously overcompensating, but I was getting through the runs. I was fine. And I tell you, that was right. I um, the, the first time I started feeling my hip on the right side was the last run I'd done in Lake Niagara before the Martinez fight. I was running with John Ryder and I got to the top of the hill and I said to Tony, I went, it's gone. Like, it's, same feeling it's as before. Same feeling. Same feeling. But with like a different leg. My right leg this time. So I was like, oh, it's gone. But the, we wasn't worried because the work had been done. I didn't feel it when I was boxing. It was fine. It was only the running. Uh, now and again, if I did burpees or anything where I had to squat down or anything like that, it would pinch. But boxing, I was usually okay uh, other than the stealth fight. But We won't talk about that today, no. Darren. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> leading into the Gill fight, so you said a minute ago when the fight was announced, you had 14 weeks training camp. Where did you go for training camp? Anywhere in particular? You mentioned Tenerife. Was that a previous fight? Yeah, or? that was previous. We spent most of... Most of it at home. Um, some really good sparring. Mixture of uh, fighters come down. Any names? Can you uh, not really, but there was one guy we had. Okay, Diego Burson. Right, you look at him on box rec. He had, I mean, his record. It wasn't very good. By the way, one of the nicest men you could ever wish to meet from Peckham, London. One of the best blokes I've ever met in boxing. Such a nice man. Um, Five, six, and one. He was. Hard as they come. He give me like some real tough spars. He was on Ramadan during part of the camp and he couldn't drink water in between rounds. Box some real tough guys. Lee Markham, Elliot Matthews, Joe Mullander, Brad Pauls. But he, I'm you, he was an handful. Was it the style? Sta- was, was yeah, so he was aggressive. He was game. He threw a lot of punches and he, he was brilliant prep for me. Um, not, you know, not your typical big name. You know, I used to, been, used to spar with Carl Froch, etc. Some, uh, some massive, you know, for... Um, Martino sparred a lot with James Gal, Billy Joe Saunders and you know good fighters but for this fight predominantly Diego Burton there would have been others in the gym at the time but that, that was the main sparring partner I think When did you go over to Atlantic City before the fight? We went out about two weeks before stayed in Jersey City you'd know it just over the water from Manhattan it was good it was you know I was, just wanted to get in there no wobbles really until the, the day of the fight but no good what was the build-up like? Press conferences and the like. Did you do much media in, well, in the week before? Because things are a little bit different now to what yeah. they were ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, we had the the presser and Wayne. I think was in Atlantic City, similar to you know these fight weeks. Yeah, I can't remember if we'd done a um, an initial presser. You know, just to kick start things. Don't, yeah, I don't think you did. I was I trying don't to do a bit of research. Yeah. But going back to the question you asked before about. I'd had all of those experiences with Martinez. It just didn't feel alien. I was in New York. It was comfortable. Um, the presser wasn't the first time. The weigh wasn't the first time. It was, you know, back in Atlantic City, different venue, but the same commission. Starting to recognise some people. It was the second time having buffer. It was just, you know, I was, I'd already felt experienced second time round being in AC. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I could be wrong here, and it could be the Martinez fight as well. I remember speaking to Eddie once about, I think it might be Martinez, you guys were walking down the strip, if you want to call it that, mm. and it was the day of the press conference, and it was either you or Eddie saw or clocked a nice whistle in the window no, when no. he bought it. This I could is, be well wrong. No, no, just, it's not far off. It is Martinez, but I'll just quickly tell us that it's funny. So we that, that was a whirlwind for me as well, fighting one of the elite level fighters. I know we're talking about Gil here, but quickly went to New York for one night for the press conference in Manhattan. Yeah. And uh, we was walking along one of the avenues in New York and he said these naughty 
bright pair of green trousers. And he went, ah, oh, for a laugh, you should wear them trousers. Go on, get them trousers for a laugh. I went, ah, sod, I ain't wearing them. Uh, get to the press over, and Martinez is wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> he had these bright green prayer of strides on, yeah. <laughs> now, with it being an IBF fight, there is an IBF second day weigh-in, yes. which some people might not be aware of. So do you want to maybe just run us through what that entitles and how differently you approach things with that in the... In the yeah, uh, look, it, with this uh, governing body, the IBF, you, you have to do the second weigh-in and it's about hydration. You can't put on more than 10 pounds the next morning. So you weigh in on the Friday, you wake up Saturday, a time is agreed... Um, and when you do that second weighing, you cannot weigh over 10 pounds. Um, yeah, to do with rehydration, whatever, whatever it is. I, I was I was always fine. I think a lot more professional near the end of my career, thankfully. So I weighed seven pounds, I think. I think Gil was a bit heavier. And then you have a load up after that, presumably. Have a load up, have a load up after. But funny enough, I used to have my load up after the weighing, but you have to hold back a little bit, but... Like I say, I was a lot more professional. I had a nutritionist at that time as well helping me. So it comfortably seven pounds. I, f- I felt like I may be over, but the amount I'd eaten and drunk, but I was fine, only seven pounds. One thing I want to just ask, which I've sort of touched over before we get onto the, the fight and stuff itself, is with the adjustments you've had to make with the injuries and you're coming towards the back end of your career, I think you said at the start, you know, your body started to fail you. Mm. How much did your training itself have to change? in the latter stage of your Massive. career. Presumably done, there weren't as much running, right? Done no sustained running whatsoever. The only bit of running I'd done, and this was this was in secret, funny enough, because I wasn't, I was told not to run. So I, because I was so possessed and winning this fight, I, I just couldn't rest. So now and again, I'd throw in the odd sprint session, like little short hill sprints, like 30 meter hill sprints, just to get the heart rate going, just to get me going. But other than that, it was all done in the swimming uh, in the swimming pool, all pool work. So I'd do a mile in the pool um, with webbed gloves, so more resistance. So you go faster though, but more resistance and you know the fin, the you know on your feet. So again, more. Uh, resistance but you do go faster but I do front crawl there and back on my back there and back then holding a float facing forwards obviously there and back and it would take me I think my record was 34 minutes almost a 12 round fight so I did and then I'd do loads of punching and that it was all assisted by Wayne Leal who was the coach uh, my sort of I don't know what you want to call him, sort of S&C coach, if you like. Uh, so that was all done in the pool. So we'd spend about an hour and a half in the pool. That was three times a week, and twice a week we'd do it on the little mini rebounders, you know, little trampolines, yeah. because it, it had the resistance, you know, you, a bit springy, so it was a lot more uh, kinder on my hips. Um, and that that was it. So that, that other than that, and a lot of yoga, did a lot of yoga as well, sort of three sessions a week, yoga. Fans might have seen you in a bit of yoga with Maisie Rose Courtney recently <laughs> yeah, on our new yeah. JD series, Through My Paces, check that out as well. So all the hard work's done, fight day, any superstitions that you had? I never had superstitions, but with this guy, Wayne Lill, we was doing a lot of guided meditation during and after the yoga that we was doing, and uh, it really got me in a good mindset. And look, I think you, you might not sense it from anyone who knows me you might not get this impression from me but I, I am quite insecure I was back then anyway I think as I've matured now you know I take things as a pinch of salt but back then I was quite insecure and I was certainly insecure as a fighter um, always sort of second guessing am I good enough blah 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 and um, he would I'd do this guided meditation with him and um, he basically just feed me a load of <laughs> 
compliments and sort of say how good I am and how hard you've trained and this is your destiny, blah, blah, blah. And we've done a lot of that in the build-up to the guild fight. And um, fight day, I wake up and just this cloud of negativity. And you got to remember, for 13 weeks, six days, I was the most... Yeah, you said you had a wobble. A yeah, ago, exactly. Yeah. So I was the most confident man. I promise you, I thought, this is it. I this, this is... He's right what he's telling me. This is my destiny. He's, you know, this is it. This is meant to happen. I'm doing this for me, my brother, my family, you know, for my legacy, blah, blah, blah. And um, I had a wobble. I woke up. I was like, what sort of time? As in during the night or just... No, no, no. I woke up. I went for breakfast and I must have done that weighing and went for breakfast. And then I was like, oh, shit. I've been kidding myself. You know what I mean? I've only been confident. Then I started thinking this because he's been saying it. You know, I'm not. I've gone back to myself now. I'm not. You know, I'm not this supremely confident person. Anyway, I couldn't get hold of him. He was in Atlantic City, and I couldn't. I was trying to ring him. I had to ring his son, and his son got hold of him, and he come up to my room, and he'd done this sort of like again a bit of guided meditation. He sort of t- going through. It was clever what he'd done. He he described each round as a chapter in a book, and he was sort of describing how the rounds are going to play out and this and that. And I remember at the end being back on track. I was like, right, yes, there we go. I'm in it. I'm I'm. I'm back in the zone. Um, and then it was just eagerness to get the fight underway. It's a lot of waiting around on fight day, I find. Yeah. You know, we get to spend a lot of time with the fighters in hotels. And fight day, they seem bored. I know it's a bit of a weird thing to say because you've got a fight on your mind. But there is a hell of a long time between, like you say, breakfast at, say, 10, 11 a.m. till the time you leave to the arena. Can you remember what time you did head over? Was it early evening? Was it? Ooh, yeah, it would have been early evening. <clears throat> would have ring walked about 10, half 10 or whatever it was. But yeah, I was like, I used to get quite bored, but I used to, Atlantic City, you've been there? Yeah. Yeah, so there's the, the outlet yep. outside. So I, I'd always mooch about. I, there's always you know, something to do there, isn't Yeah, there's always yeah. something to do. Yeah. Um, I didn't mind Atlantic City and everyone would say to me, look, calm down, chill out, blah, blah. I couldn't sit still. I was a little bit like, you know, you've explained there, bored and I'd have a mooch about, go around the shops and yeah, head over to the venue and that's when the nerves start kicking in. Do you know what I mean? And the magnitude of the event for me, certainly, because I knew this was my last fight. If I'd lost, I was never going to fight again. This was my this was my whole career, my whole life's work, building up to this moment. So, yeah, very laid laid back and calm and relaxed and um, self assured in my preparation in this fight. But that's when the nerves kick in when you get to the arena. Sort of poke your head through and look at the ring, flipping it. That's where it's all going to happen. Because I knew it was going to be a hard fight. I knew. It was never going to be an easy fight against Daniel Gill, who showed a good chin. He's got a fantastic engine. I knew it was going to be tough. Talk to us about gloves. Did you have a certain brand that you liked? Did you have to wear Everlast? So, are you you asking this question for a reason? No, I'm not going anywhere. Right, so it wasn't Ever. I did use Everlast, but this particular fight, and maybe a fight before, I was sponsored by Lonsdale. So, I did use Everlast, but for this fight, it was was Lonsdale. It was Lonsdale, yeah, Yeah, but I did wear Everlast. Fun, well, I say it was funny. It wasn't funny at all at the time. But after the win, there's a there's a meeting at some point where you get to try on the gloves and all that. A rules meeting. Rules yeah. meeting. I could never be asked to go to them. So Tony would go for me, try on the gloves, lovely, bang. And that's it. So he'd tried on the gloves. Get to, my hands are wrapped. And you get to the part where I used to get most nervous is putting the gloves on. I don't know why I used to get most nervous. So sort of, these are your tools. These are what you're going in battle with, your gloves. And it used to, I used to get the, the jitters and... The, first, the, the gloves are there. There's just one pair. So I put the gloves on. And I remember thinking, nah, these don't feel right. The thumb, the stitching in the thumb was like really high up the, the, the thumb. It, there didn't seem much space at all for my thumb. It was really cramped and really uncomfortable. I put them on. He wrapped them up and I started eating the pads. And I, I would, 
Tony will vouch for this. I never made a fuss about anything. Just get in there. It's a fight. Do what you got to do. I said to Tony, I've got to take these gloves off. Like, these are so... These ain't good. Go and get the other pair. That took about 15 minutes to try and find the other pair. The other pair have come. They're even worse. So I had to go back to the original pair and just suffer it. There's nothing I could do. Literally, I had to wear them. Because well, um, they'd so been signed off at the They'd been meeting. signed off. So I've got to wear these gloves. I started at the pads of them and it, my thumb was really starting to... It, it was horrible. It was. Like, it feels like my, my nail was bending. So, you know, I picked my nail, I trying to shorten it as much as I could, but it was agony. It really, it, then I started thinking, oh, this is a nightmare, absolute nightmare. In my head, I'm in turmoil, absolute turmoil. You're going back to the early in the day memories of starting to doubt yourself. Yeah, they started yeah. creeping in, but it, w- it wasn't too bad. So I just reminded myself, and this was always the case for me, once that bell goes in a fight, the first bell in a fight, any nerves you've got, any worries you've got, anything you're thinking about gets pushed to one side. You, you're you in, it was almost like being hypnotised, you're in a trance. That's the best way I could describe the first bell, you know, the start of a fight. Bang, you're in fight mode. You don't, you're not thinking about anything else, you're not thinking about your family ringside, you just, bang, you're in the fight. And thankfully for me, that was what happened with the fun. They forgot about it. And prior to the opening bell, your ring walk, just remind us what tune you had and why. I, I had, answer, I had, um, I haven't found what I'm looking for. What's it called? Yeah. You too. And I still I haven't found <laughs> what I'm looking for. Well, um, Sky Sports have done a really good, um, by you too. Yeah. By you too. Yeah. They've done a really good build up documentary prior to that fight. And I think that really captured the story. Everyone sort of got to know me a little bit. It was, you know, me at home and me with my, my daughter then and the story about my brother and I think not many people might have not known it then and they've really really done a good job at the end of it they played that song and it really got me going and I thought I'll follow it on and I'll use it and it was I'm really glad I did because there was a lot of visions come into my head during the ring walk about my daughter about my brother and why I'm doing this and I'm glad I chose that song wasn't usually I'd have something upbeat uplifting but that one was more poignant to me and the third man in the ring Mr Eddie Cotton who unfortunately has passed away in recent years during the uh, the pandemic did you it's a bit of a weird thing to, to say as a, as a fighter but you know it's more for the team sometimes you have objections to referees to judges did you look into nah, you, know, nah, you weren't interested I, in I didn't get involved in any of that like I say to fight they've got to do my part you know I can't, I can't, I'm not in control of all of that I trusted my team and yeah I wasn't bothered Eddie was obviously famous for refing the Lewis and Tyson fight in 2002 in a weird twist of fate do you happen to know what his last fight was that he refereed? So there's do, you, a, do you know? Only because I've done a bit of research, nah, but it's weird how things work out. His last fight, uh, Felix Sturm and Sam Solomon. Of oh, all, was it really? Of all fights right, in the world. Right, it's weird right, how right. things work out. Um, just want to touch on some of the undercard fights. It was a pretty short card. It was only five five or six fights. But it's right. Gary Shaw had a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that a few times down the years. Um, but Kiko Martinez won his world title yeah. against, I think, Romero. Romero, yeah. And I saw the small Colombian guy. Saw this morning actually on our Instagram post, which um, flashed up of, of you winning. He he liked it, and I know you're not fluent in Spanish, but every time you see Kiko, there's a quite a nice bond. You Always. guys you guys share that moment. Well, it was his first world title, and uh, whenever he sees me, he goes Champione, Champione, Champione. Always we always embrace, and yeah, there's just that. Like I say, we lost. It's lost in translation, but that 
that we shared a special night that night. Uh, there's a bond there, even though we can't articulate, like I say, between each other. We just we always embrace, and it's a special moment. And we always flash back. I'm guessing to that moment where we achieved our life's work, our dream. Did you have his fight on in your dressing room? Yeah, it would have been on. It would have been on. Um, no, really, I was you know just in the zone, but there was there was a monitor in there showing it definitely. And the fight itself. Now we don't need to go over old ground. Michael Buffer did fuck up once upon a time, um, to put it bluntly. <laughs> As he's announcing you, you're thinking, get it right, get it right. Yeah, I was. Funny enough, I was. I was. I mean, I've been lying to you if I said I wasn't, but I just wanted him to get it right. I really did, you know, because I grew up listening to him and Jimmy Lennon uh, announcing the big fights, and he got it wrong against Martinez, bakered me off. Um, and he got it right. He did get it right, and it was just showtime then. From that moment, there's, there's, um, in, in the background, you can hear England, England, a couple yeah. of Chelsea songs as well. The first round was fast and furious. We're not going to go for every round, so don't worry. But did you expect the fight to maybe play out as it did in the early I, exchanges? I, I did expect it to be a tough fight, fight, like I said to you, but what I didn't expect was his footwork to be as slippery and as fast and for him to be as awkward. He was we, very awkward, wasn't he? He was, and we, you know, we planned and we prepared for a very awkward fight, but... I remember coming back after the first round and I think I might have said to Tony, look, I'm going to have to sort of get a bit closer to him and turn this into a bit of a brawl because his feet are, are really fast and I, I felt like I was falling over my shots a little bit and he was quite catching me a few times with uppercuts so I had to try and stay close to him. When I stayed close to him, I think uh, I was getting the better of the exchanges. Like I say, I was a man possessed so I wouldn't be outworked and I was very, i got to give myself credit, I was very switched on and I just, I wouldn't look ahead to the next round it was always stay present concentrate on this moment and then we can you know get back to corner and go again there's one telling line obviously it's only a very short period of time you get from the cameras coming onto you there's so much going on advertisements and, and the like but Tony repeated the same line twice to you at the end of the first round it was don't throw shots or drop your hands on the way out mm. he said that twice and you acknowledged it so it was quite interesting yeah yeah Round two, as fast and furious again. The punch stats in the early rounds were neck and neck. It really was uh, a close fight. Just talk to us about Gill's unconventional movement because it was quite quite telling from from the get go. Was you aware of that going in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it'd be slippery. I knew he was awkward. Look, a very he was an Olympian, fought in the World Championships, won a Commonwealth Games. He had a good amateur uh, pedigree, but and I would say an unorthodox style, but very off. Uh, very awkward, very slippery, but very fit and game. And um, I just knew it was going to be in a hard fight. Like I say, I, I felt like I was falling short. I did feel like I had the quicker hands, um, but I think he had the quicker feet for sure. And um, where I was trying to get to him quickly, I kept falling over the shots. I kept getting caught a couple of times and um, I just had to get close to him. Uh, round three, all judges gave you that round. So... It's quite interesting to look back on the scorecards, actually. Obviously, we know it's a split decision, but to go through round by round and have a look, you can start to pick up patterns and and whatnot. Round number four was interesting because there was a low blow in there, which Eddie Cotton... He gives me stick for, did not he? Yeah, he blamed you when <laughs> yeah. you clearly got yeah, tagged. Yeah. And I, do you know what? I didn't know what was going on at the time. I didn't know. He was coming over to me. I think he was asking me if I was right. And at one point, he started selling me off, but I didn't... I, 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 I was just gobsmacked that he was blaming me because he proper hits me low. And even Daniel, I think, was quite surprised to, yeah, be, yeah. to be fair as well. <laughs> he didn't have to do much, did he, really, in reflection, Eddie? Uh, Eddie. Nah, nah. It was quite a free-flowing fight. It and was, and yeah. when he did break you, it was quite clear, concise. 
you mm. guys just win again. Yeah. The fitness element's interesting there. You obviously knew that uh, Daniel would be as fit as a fiddle. With your adjustments made in training camp, did you worry at all that bet down the stretch? No, nah, I mean, I was worried a little bit always because of my injuries, always. Um, but I knew I was supremely fit. I was so, I was in such good condition. Um, so I wasn't, but I, there was always that big question mark. Will I be as fit as him? Because he was so, he was an animal. Um, but yeah, I just thought, sorry, I was going to outdo him each time. Through round four and five, you, you land a, a nice couple of uppercuts and Tony says they're working. Interestingly, around this sort of time, the gill corner says you're not attacking the body at all, which is interesting because you obviously know yeah, what comes yeah, next. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how, know that. how that unfolds. There was a couple of really nice body flurries from yourself, like mm. four and five punch combinations to the body. You did that multiple times. Was that a shot you worked on or was that just literally reaction and, and natural? Yeah, we, we work on punches and bunches um, with Tony, you know, little flurries. Not particular for that fight, I don't think. But um, it like again, it was just a lot of. I watched that fight back. I think to myself, flipping out. Like I didn't box that good, really. You know, box that character. There was a lot of mistakes I made, but that was my desire and will overtaking. Round number six, the head started to come in a bit close as you guys were really unloading. You went down. It was a peach of a body shot, yeah. but you did get clipped to the top of the head before that yeah. with the right hand. Did that somewhat scramble the senses, to use Jim Watts' phrase? I don't think so. I don't have any recollection of it anyway, but the body shot was crippling. And look, um, we spoke about this so many times. Mm. When you was down, obviously a nine count, and you say, you know, at that moment, you had time to think about your brother, your inspiration, yeah. mm. the reason you was there. Just talk to us about that moment. Did yeah. you have to... Oh, that's a bit of a weird question to ask. Did you have to find that, or did it find you in a weird way? Because... Found speaking, me. Speaking to you now, a lot of things seems to be adding up to say this is meant to be. Found me for sure because all you're trying to do is escape the pain. You don't want to think about anything else. And I'll tell you what you don't want to be thinking about is continue fighting. Your body naturally wants to look after itself. So, you know, these visions of my brother, my daughter, um, to sort of, it was, it. the best way I can describe it is I I would imagine it be, you know, when you see these films or people talk about near-death experiences and the life flashes in front of them. Well, it was similar to that, you know, and, you know, sort of in the background, you've got this crippling pain. Um, and it was just like, you know, my brother saying, get up, come on, you're, not, you're so close, come on, get, get up. And completely unaware of the time, of the referee counting didn't know where I was at. It was just complete fluke that I've got up on nine and a half. Like I did, I did not know. I have no recollection of thinking. Right, it's nine. Get up. It you just, weren't in control of the count. Nah, just I just somehow got up. It's it almost. It's really weird. And I don't like. Sometimes it feels like I'm just bigging this up just for the sake of it. But it feels like I was. A, I was like a puppet string. You know, the puppet. Someone pulling me up. This weight is. Someone grabbing me by the scruff on my neck, really, and pulling me up. It's really, really weird and. Then Eddie Cotton said to me, you're okay, you want to fight on? And because I was winded, I couldn't talk. Like, yes! <laughs> it was a squeaky little voice. But yeah. And then the next 45 seconds were a bit of an ons onslaught, but you fought back. It was incredible. I think Max Kellerman on the HBR American commentary, he was almost in disbelief. You ended the round by raising your arms yeah. and fighting back. And actually at that point, the next couple of rounds, you probably won... Seven were probably my best round, yeah. Say that. Yeah, it was probably... I think you... 
doubled his output in that round, which is incredible, really. You must have expected an onslaught. Bit of a shift in power at the end of the sixth there because he's looking at me thinking, flipping it, what have I got to do to stop him? And I'm on the flip side thinking, well, you, I've had your best shots there. You've, you've given me everything and I'm still here. Right, let's go. You're in a fight now, mate. Yeah, you won the, the seventh, 10-9 um, on all three scorecards. As the, the fight starts to go on, I think you're right there. Mentally, he must have started doubting himself because his corner was trying to G him up that little bit more, yeah. which they weren't doing in the in the earlier rounds. The heads start coming together. He had a little bit of damage around your eye, but mm. nothing too... Nah. It's quite nice on the side, I suppose, of, of your eye. Now, the sort of championship rounds, maybe a little bit desperation creeps in from, from Gil. Again, some really nice body flurries from yourself. Going into those 10, 11, 12... You must have knew it was very close. It was on a while. Yeah, I knew it was close. Tony would always say to me on the championship rounds, right, uh, well, the, like, we'd sort of almost do it in three blocks. Well, I used to think of it, first four, middle four, last four. And he said, look, you've got four rounds to go here. You know, piece of piss. You trained after this, blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, because I was unaware of where I was in the fight. Uh, and I thought, oh, lovely, four rounds there, blinding. So then it was bang, on it. Just just outwork him. Just, you know, get the last, last side of the arguments. And you did, and you, you won all three... Um, on all three scorecards, 10-11, I think the, the 12th split. I mean, when that final bell went, did you think you'd done enough? Yeah. Any fighter will tell you, you, you know. It's very hard in comparison to an amateur fight because of the length of the, the fight, the duration of the fight, 12 rounds. But you know as a fighter whether you've won or lost a, a fight. And I think the body language between the two of us showed. I, I wasn't convinced, but I knew I, I felt I'd done enough. Uh, whether I'd get it being the away fighter on his American debut... Gary Shaw's, uh, you know, other fighter, the Romero, had just lost in the Chiefs' support support against Kiko Martinez. He's thinking, nah, might not go our way here. But I wasn't really thinking about that. I was proud of myself. I was proud that I'd put in a good performance. <laughs> you know, I'd heard the final bell in a World Championship fight, which I didn't against Martinez. And I'd proved that I'm tough. I always wanted to prove that I wasn't just a tidy boxer. I could tough it out when I needed to. And I did it that night. So, awaiting the scorecards, it was a, there was a feeling of pride Plus nerves and worry, but I was happy with what I'd managed to achieve. And when them cards were read out, 114, 113 Gill, first and foremost, 116, 111 Barker, 114, 113 Barker. Someone told me recently, I don't know if this is true, whenever Michael Buffer reads the first name out, they don't win. It's as if he does it. It's like a trademark somewhat. Surely not. Right. Because you give, I don't you, mean, you'd you give away the ghost, pattern. wouldn't you? you yeah, you give read, away the ghost. You'd read that pattern. But... I did think the 116-111 was generous, don't get me wrong. Um, I think it's a round or two in it. Uh, but my initial thought was when I heard 114 on the last card, I thought it was going to be a draw. Draw, yeah. Draw. Now on draw. Because he stopped it. before he said 13. Yeah, and I thought, yeah. now on draw. Then he goes 113, and you see me, I think, I sort of look up, and, well, someone's won this. Good, good story here. You see my brother, he's on the apron, right? He's on the apron outside the ring because he was in the corner helping Tony, like sort of holding the bucket and that. And he'd seen Buffer's scorecard. He see it, so he see I'd won. So you see him jumping up and down. He's jumping up and down, buzzing. Right, I've won the fight. And um, but then he has this. He's told everyone ringside quickly, saying he's won it. But then he panics quickly, thinking, "Shit, what if I haven't read this properly?" So he sort you see his face drop a little bit, and then he says, "And the new," and yeah, the rest is history, mate. We don't need to talk about all that because you've done it a million times over yeah. and we know the the scenes and whatnot. A couple of closing questions from me. What time did you finish up that night celebrating? Weren't weren't late. I um 
Did the post-fight press conference, give Gil his belt back, spent a bit of time with the family, had a couple of beers. There was a big buffet where the workers could eat in the hotel and it was really good food. So we had a big load up there and at that point I just hit a wall, went to bed. The next day we couldn't find my granddad. He stayed out on the piss and fell asleep outside the hotel on the, the little outside uh, patio area. We couldn't find him. There was a big panic saying, where is he, where is he? I said to my nan, where's my granddad? Couldn't find him and he had a go at us for not celebrating. So hey, you just <laughs> won a world title. My granddad just won a world title and no one's celebrating. Um, but yeah, great, great times. I wish I'd enjoyed that time a bit more. Like that, that being a world champion, it was just a whirlwind. You're Before probably a bit I knew relieved it. as well, right? Yeah, a bit relieved. And I just don't think I enjoyed it enough. But, you know, I'm milking the life out of it now. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you give your belt back to Gil. How long did it take for your one to come? Uh, it wasn't long. I just remember Eddie saying, we've got a present for you at the office. I went to the matrim and, yeah, picked up the belt. It's special. It wasn't long at all. But, yeah, um, dream come true. You know, when you're a kid, you just want a belt. But I had a, I had a world title. Where does that live now? It's in my mum and dad's house. My dad's got everything. I don't have anything at my house. Nothing. My uh, mum and dad has everything. It's like a little sort of shrine, shrine to me and my brother in my uh, mum and dad's house. You got a couple of kids now. Do they know what four? Yeah, yeah. Three since so I had Scarlet Rose got four kids. Yeah, Just one more. And I got a five aside football team. Right? <laughs> Do they know? And I suppose yeah, as as time progresses and they get a little bit older, but. Do they start to realise what dad achieved? A little bit. They find it weird. Like people come up to me and ask for a photo. They go, "Who's that, daddy? Is it what they asking for a photo?" My, you know, my two eldest sort of know now, but um, yeah, strange. I, I like seeing them beaming with pride because that is my, that's my everything now. That is now my life's work: being a good dad, making them proud. Darren Barker, thank you very much for joining me for episode one. A dream, well and true. Thank achieved. you, mate. Pleasure looking back, and uh, look forward to. Working with you for years to come, my friend. Yeah, we'll do this in 10 years' time, mate. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, mate. Take care.